One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth in Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm David Jenkins. And I'm Hannah Strong. On the show this week, as mentioned last week, for Barbie Heimer Week, we couldn't choose, so we are doing individual episodes dedicated to each film. First up, you are listening to our Barbie special. The iconic doll comes to the big screen and she can't stop thinking about dying. Hannah spoke to its director, Greta Gerwig, about making one of the year's biggest and pinkest cinema events. And for Film Club, we paired it with the young girls of Rochefort, all coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So, I mean, it's a very strange week to be even kind of film biz adjacent. We've got two of like the big releases coming out at the same time. The actors are on strike and yeah, very uncertain times ahead. But worth mentioning that uh, both this week and next week, the interviews were recorded before the strike. So like nobody's crossing a picket line in order to appear on Truth and Movies. I know. How are you guys feeling about this? We're going to have a really tough time with our jobs. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the the thing is going to be how long does this kind of carry on for? Because obviously festival season is rapidly approaching and Venice, Toronto, Telluride and New York Film Festival are in very close succession. So if this drags on through July, August, September, then we could be looking at very different versions of those festivals, which I am kind of in favour of. I think that one of the annoying things about film festivals is that they kind of become this like platform for celebrity more than about the films. And although I like seeing all the celebrities alive in Venice on their boats, I do think it might be a bit easier to do our jobs on the ground if we're not having to contend with like hordes of Chalamet and Harry Styles fans like like we have in previous years so yeah I don't know I mean obviously I am massively in favor of the strikes and my wish is just that the studios would kind of realize how much they're shooting themselves in the foot by letting this carry on because they are the ones that are the problem here it's you know no one wants to go on strike no one like is like dying to do this so you know they've kind of as uh, Fran Jesh was saying in the speech like this was the last resort and they've like forced everyone's hand so you know solidarity to them and uh, it must be boring as well just being on strike all the time so I you know I fully sympathize with them and hope they get fair deal. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting how it pivoted when it went from just the writers to the writers and the actors, because, you know, all the signs are quite fun with the writers' strike. But now we're kind of getting a bit of theatre. We're getting <laughs> a lot of clips of these guys like delivering some very passionate monologues. Sean Gunn's monologue was very good, I have to say. And obviously, like, I mean, during the writers' strike, Christopher and uh, Jonathan Nolan were like on the uh, picket line in LA like quite early on in the strike so you know I think they would be fully in favor sorry there's a, the the cat is behind me like fully like worming across the floor that's why I keep looking off to the side sorry about that <laughs> <laughs> for for regular listeners I am I, I'm looking after a cat and he has decided this is the opportune moment to start um doing the worm across the floor which is very cute but quite distracting but yeah yeah i mean i obviously the nolans i I believe would be fully in favor and it's been interesting watching at the premiere so all the stars been asked and they're all kind of saying well yeah you know this isn't fun for us this is our lives and the thing they're trying to safeguard is the future of cinema if you if anyone listening hasn't read about what exactly is people taking issue with it is pretty damning stuff that the studios are are trying to bring in that you know the idea that an actor can come in work one day for three hundred dollars and then their likeness can be used indefinitely that is like scary that Mm. that shouldn't you know that shouldn't even be a question so and i love those little weird background actors i can't i don't want to live in a world 
world where you don't kind of see some kind of eccentric person making the most of their moment right at the back of the scene. Well, maybe tomorrow when we talk about Oppenheimer, maybe let's not go into it now, but like it's it's kind of the antithesis of that idea of the of the oh let's just airbrush a bunch of things into the background or let's just cgi some buildings over there and change the weather and 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 make everyone look smooth you know like interestingly with these two films with regard to the strike you you guys might feel differently about this or maybe maybe i've got got this all wrong but like it feels like for a long time people have that a lot of chips have been placed on these two films and i don't know whether that's just some kind of strange pop cultural phenom that's happened because they're coming out at the same time and they're so different or that actually there is there is some sort of like industry backing of this and like you know that there is a real genuine need for for films like this to do well and it it does strike me that you know both of these films we're going to be talking about you know, uh, on over these two podcasts, are very kind of that you know, they're, they're not your kind of regular summer blockbuster, you know, bump that you you know that we've that we've maybe been seeing for the last sort of decade or so. They're very much kind of like you know they're more challenging. They've got a kind of they're, they're a bit more kind of outlier status. They're a bit more subversive, and I think I feel it would send a message to the studio bosses if these films did do well of like exactly what what they're going to be losing out on. All you know, all this creative talent and making the films that people who are striking clearly want to be making are gonna are gonna are gonna lose. So, um, but yeah, I think we're still in early days on it now, and you know, there's still there's still there's still the, the kind of backlog of of quote unquote content that they're able to kind of prop themselves up on for a while. But like, it's gonna run out soon. It's gonna there's the, you know things are starting to get pat you know going to be getting patchy, and we're gonna start seeing like weird reruns of films and there's going to be like you know completely dead weeks and films going to be in the cinemas for for a long time with nobody actually seeing them it's 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 an it's unfortunate and and you know i do uh, you know let we'll, we'll go deeper into them but you know i do hope that both these films do do well you know i hope people flock to see them i think they will i've had a lot of people kind of asking me about both i think you know and and, and the question is always kind of not which one but like which order yeah, like, there's very few people in my life that are only interested in seeing one of these. But yeah, I mean, I'm the same with you. I mean, both of them, I kind of came out with the same feeling of just like, wow, that really wasn't what I was expecting. You know, and isn't that lovely? <laughs> I think I think I mean it's interesting because obviously Barbie has been so widely marketed. In fact, we've got a piece going up on the Oil Lies about this today when we're recording, so it will already be up by the time people um listen to this podcast. And it, the piece is comparing the marketing for Barbie with the marketing for uh, Hayao Miyazaki's uh, How Do You Live, which came out in Japan this past week and is going to come out at some point in the UK and the US. Um retitled The Boy and the Heron, which is upsetting because How Do You Live is like goes hard as a title. But anyway, um, it was announced in June that they weren't going to do any marketing for that film beyond the poster that existed. And um, one of the producers said, I think deep down that's what audiences really want. And he kind of took a bit of a sly dig at Barbie and said, there's three trailers out for this big summer release. And if you watch them all, you've already seen the entire film. So I think it's interesting that we're seeing like three films that have been marketed in very, very different ways but all have generated this huge amount of interest for various reasons. Like obviously with Barbie, it's obvious why people might be interested in that. Same with the Hayao Miyazaki film, same with Oppenheimer. But I, I'm very interested to hear the audience reactions and kind of if people feel that their expectations were met and if they feel like it was essential to be in a cinema and see it first. Because that's why I love going to cinema is because you want to be, you know, you want that moment where you're like, oh my God, I had no idea this is what was going to be there and that does get lost if you have to wait for streaming to see something so you know i I've, I've said this a lot this past week but i'm i'm so up for event cinema coming back and for that feeling of walking into the cinema not knowing really what to expect and coming out just kind of like totally invigorated by it and i definitely got that with barbie i haven't seen oppenheimer at the time of recording so i'm hoping for that similar feeling tonight <laughs> and you're seeing it at the imax i hope it needs to be seen at the imax imax 70 mil can't wait as intended, with the massive, massive IMAX print that I've been seeing pictures of everywhere and thinking of those poor, poor projectionists having to try and load that up. <laughs> well, I will try not to spoil it for you, but 
Yeah, I mean, just just it, I think it's kind of like worth addressing because there has been kind of like a bit of a debate online that it kind of in light of these strikes, like when it comes to things like Barbie and Oppenheimer and people walking out of you know Oppenheimer, they literally left the actors left the premiere uh, because like the strike had begun and they wanted to like go and join the picket lines. Our role in all of these things because in a way, like David said, like if these films do well, that is good for the WGA and for SAG and like actually affords them more power and we aren't part of the WGA so we're not on strike but like I think it's a it's a little grey but I you know I feel confident that we're not doing anything we did finally get clarification from SAG AFRA yesterday they released a set Mm -hmm. of guidelines saying that critics should still be doing their job and should be working to highlight the films but also to highlight the strikes and to just kind of like get the word out there about why the strike is important and why it isn't just rich people complaining about not getting enough money, which is like, that's not what it is at all. And I think there's this common misconception that like actors get paid a lot of money when really like th- there are some in- insane stories out there. The, the, one of the actresses from Orange is the New Black um, has been quoted quite widely. She's talked quite a lot about this, about the residuals on streaming and how little money you actually make. And I think Sydney Sweeney talked about this as well. Like she can't afford to take time off because she doesn't make enough money from acting, which is crazy for one of the kind of biggest actresses in the world right now to say that so uh, i see our role as critics very much as kind of holding the studios to account and yes talking about the the films but also kind of keeping that pressure on in a way and there's been some confusion around the term scab and what is and isn't scabbing um i would say that unless we are going to the studios and offering to work for them and offering to yeah yeah, i'll go and star in gladiator too uh, yeah, put me in. Put me in reds. I'll do it. Uh, I'll I'll take Meskel's role um, unless unless that's happening. I think it, there needs to be some clarification, which which luckily Sagafra have given finally to the to the journalists. <laughs> They've given us. They said no. So it's okay for you to be writing and reviewing. Just make sure you're showing some solidarity. I think. Well, safe to say we've we've done that. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. I hope no one at home is sat listening to this going, wow, I'm just not, I'm not quite sure how the truth and me these guys feel about these strikes. <laughs> but yeah, we should get on to the subject of this week's special episode. It's Barbie. Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. You'll receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady HQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. After being expelled from the utopian Barbie land for being a less than perfect doll, Barbie and Ken go on a journey of self-discovery together in the real world. But before we get into the film itself, here's Hannah talking to director Greta Gerwig. Yeah, I don't know why that's not merch. That's I can't a, believe that's a win one That's perfect that. merch. <laughs> well done. You should start an Etsy store. Thank you. I've been thinking about it. You know, you've got to diversify in this economy. Journalism's not making it like no, it used to. It's got to. You got to. You got to find. You got to. Etsy side hustle, Barbie. Yes, exactly. <laughs> First of all, congratulations. Thank you. I love the film. Thank I you. cried three times mm. and remembered why I fell in love with Ryan Gosling when I was fourteen. So it was, you, you know, a real journey for me. <laughs> Thank I'm a huge fan of your past films as well. And I guess my first question is kind of how you view the relationship between Lady Bird, Little Women and Barbie. Mm. Do you see it as a kind of continuation of certain themes or do you prefer, as some directors do, to just treat every single one as a kind of, that's a chapter closed, start a new thing? Yeah, well, I mean, I think from inside myself, I see each thing as a distinct thing. Because I don't, I don't know. That's how I, I, that's how I view it, and I kind of start each one as like it's its own universe. But then, obviously, I think when I sort of step back and look at it, I'm like, well, I have some interests. <laughs> I can see them all co- coalescing, but I don't actively sort of look for it. I think I, I tend to always just go towards what I'm curious about, and I think you know, there's obviously lots of ways on the surface that they're all different, but I think there's, you know, I like women. <laughs> I like I like women of different generations um, talking to each other. I mean, mothers and daughters, but also just across years. I think it's um, you know I think there's been so much change f- for women in 
obviously the you know 20th century, 21st century, and sort of the kind of conversation between a 90-year-old and a 20-year-old is pretty interesting to me. And I like dancing <laughs> and musicals. I mean, like, those you do, are more you s- do like s- superficial <laughs> things, but, like, I've yet to make a movie where there's not some kind of a, a dance number in it, really. I wanted to ask about that, because yeah. obviously in your other films there were dance numbers, but this is definitely a major step Major up. dance. dance <laughs> How number. did you find that, kind of working with such big bits of choreography and having to work out the story beats that you were trying to get across with these bits? Uh, oh, I loved it. It was like, um, yeah, it was my, the, the dance parts were my like sort of dream come true as a person who makes things on film because it was just, I mean, I, I, I mean, I grew up dancing. I love dancing. And also for me, m- I think I knew movie musicals before I knew really movies. So that's another big part of my my heart is, um, I mean, and used as inspirations for this movie, but, you know, s- singing in the rain and American in Paris and Oklahoma and Brigadoon and Gigi. Like, they're all sort of fabulous and, and surreal. They have, like, a kind of surreal quality. Vincent Minnelli's musicals. And so I love all of that. And then when I was on the set and getting to kind of shoot these big dance numbers, it was kind of fulfilling some childhood love yeah did you get any appreciation having then been through the experience of oh this is what it takes to get yeah I dance th- sequence through <laughs> I think a lot about actually those Busby Berkeley numbers um but the I think it's the number from like Gold Diggers of 1935 it's the craziest dance sequence they're on these stairs they're all wearing these like kind of sexy black leather pleather tops or something it's just wild so sometimes when you look at the costumes from the 30s you're like that's like properly risque like those are wild costumes and I mean it must be 200 dancers and it's bananas I mean and I thought how did he do that how did he do any of that so yeah I I definitely um you know it's something I think about but I mean I I like dancers shown head to foot Mm. I I like seeing a full dancer body because um I don't know it's the way Fred Astaire liked to do it and I I don't think I know more than him (laughs) Also, there's less places to hide when you're doing a yeah. kind of full body shot. You can't do the kind of black no, swan, no. like, close-up for your camera no. trickery. You've got to I mean, we did do some coverage to tell the story, but I did, like, just letting them dance. I also find something very charming because, obviously, we had a lot of dancers who were professional dancers, but, you know, all the actors could dance, but mm. they are also just people dancing, and I find that quite winning. Dancing's yeah. fun, you know. Yeah. I think especially Barbie, like when I was a kid, I would just, you know, be like, oh, my Barbies are having a party. They're all dancing. And, you know, kids yeah. don't know, like, I didn't know proper dancing. So just kind of like, yeah, you know. Let them go. <laughs> Let them go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know that you just mentioned Busby Berkeley. And also I remember reading an interview where you were talking about Jacques Demy oh, and yeah. Yeah. the kind of amazing color palettes in those yeah. films. And I can obviously see the very direct kind of spirit of those in Barbie. But Mm -hmm. what is it that kind of first captivated you about those specific ones, about Buzzy Berkeley, about Demi? And when you were coming to formulating your ideas for Barbie, how did you feel those references could speak to what you envisioned? Right. Well, they they kind of have, they sort of live in different places. I mean, for the big, grand Busby Berkeley things are, in a way, those are, they're about scale more than anything else. Um, And they're about, obviously, he does all these wonderful, of the time, just like ingenious, I mean, they're of any time, really, but ingenious kind of ways of using the camera and kind of going in and coming out and and sort of like I feel like a big thing he liked to do was like start with one and then go to like 150 but uh so that that's sort of how I thought about I mean I thought about that more with like sort of the more top shots and the bigger kind of geographical geometric shapes and then I mean Jacques Demy certainly the colors honestly the way he lit all the colors that was something Rodrigo and I looked at a lot because the lighting is not uh maybe shaped as much as even the lighting that we have but it's kind of create it's a it's the ability to stack colors on each other and not create strange color on faces but it's sort of flat in a way the lighting and and I think it allows the the different colors to exist in the frame without fighting. So we were looking at that, and then another Jacques, Jacques Tati, we did a lot of, um, I mean, obviously, like, we directly referenced Playtime. And then, but Mononc, like, has those, even the way they move around that strange house and they walk all the way uh, across those steps, um, like, past this, uh, this little fountain that can't work, and then they come back. 
it's like this slow joke based on movement, which I thought a lot about when she's coming through her house and moving around her house because it it, it felt connected to that to me in some way. But I I mean, I spend a lot of time looking at movies because, I mean, I I love movies, but also it's just a constant reminder that, like, movies can be anything. You can invent anything. And there are so many different ways have people have gone about it. And I think um, sometimes you can get a little, or I can get a little, like, movies must be this. And you're like, <laughs> they could be whatever you want. You can make it up. Exactly, yeah, that's why we're here, because yeah. of the infinite possibility that exists yeah. within movie making. Yeah. One, I, I think it's probably my final question. So one of the things I wanted to ask you was, obviously I love the Indigo's reference and the Matchbox 20 reference, yeah. and those felt very Greta. They felt yeah. very, like, drawn from your kind of, yeah. like, youth. Um, how much did you kind of want to incorporate your own, like, experiences as a teenager? Sure. Obviously, like, Little Women and yeah. Lady Bird were very yeah. drawing a lot from yeah. your experience. Did you feel with this one you wanted to kind of still get those little personal touches in? Yeah, always. I mean, I think, um, you know, I, especially with this, I feel quite making it personal is so important because... I think it can feel, especially when it's something like Barbie, which is a doll, (laughs) a plastic doll. The most corporate thing possible. Yeah, and also totally impersonal. It's a product, you know. But, I mean, the truth is we spend our lives interacting with products. That's just true about us. We don't Mm. spend our lives, like, you know, living, you know, pure on organic farms. <laughs> I mean, somebody does, but not <laughs> not me. And so um, whether it's, you know, pop songs or dolls or, 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 or Kleenex, there's some emotion you have around it that's, um, that's both like a kind of shared cultural thing, but also specific. And, um, you know, I love this song. I mean, I love Closer to Find. I love Push. I mean, I was a top 40 radio girl when I was growing up and, like, looking for the songs on the radio. And and I think these things become almost like artifacts in our lives. And, you know, even the font we use for Barbie, like, this is the Barbie, this Barbie with the big bubble letters. That was the Barbie font that was on Barbie boxes when I was the age that was interested in Barbie. And I, I went back and forth on what font I wanted, and I was like, I want the one that meant something to me. I, I you know, because this is my Barbie movie, and this is this was my Barbie font, and it's a terrific looking font. It's a great font. It's a very I strong know. one. I love it. I know they've changed. <laughs> they've gone back to the original Barbie script, which is very classy, you know, but. I don't know. This one was mine. I know. It was mine, too. Yeah. Uh, You know, you never forget your Barbie. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I'm like, well, this one's mine. Somebody else can make a different one. (laughs) Thank you so much. And also, thank you for the midge representation, because I had that Midge. (laughs) Midge. So... So, Hannah, I mean, I I love that kind of like, we kind of knew we were going to do these two special episodes and then it was like divided up who gets one. There wasn't a moment of hesitation. It was kind of clear I was going to do Oppenheimer <laughs> and you were going to do Barbie. Yeah. So for a little while, it looked like we might get to talk to Ryan Gosling. And as uh, I have been obsessed with Ryan Gosling since I was like 13, 14, I saw Half Nelson and it was like the, a weird film for a 13 year old to be like, yeah, this is my guy. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I, I love Ryan Gosling and I was so excited for him to do another comedy because it's been so long. We've been really out in the trenches waiting for him to do for him to be allowed to be funny again and anyone that saw the gray man will attest to like the hard times we've had as gosling fans so yeah yeah i i was very much like staking my claim early and um obviously getting to speak to greta again was amazing and i think i was saying this last night at the screening to someone she's just such a a fan of movies and a lover of movies and when you you know you strip back all this like discourse around oh capitalism oh barbie oh whatever she's just a big nerd who loves cinema and loves musicals and is so earnest about that and like you get her talking about busby berkeley or jack demi or even Jack Tatty, who she cited as an influence on uh, this film, like she just can go for hours. There's an amazing video that Letterboxd did, an interview with her actually, where she's talking through the inspirations behind Barbie and she's talking about just the array of films she's citing, all that jazz and uh, New York, New York and uh, the gold diggers of... Um, 1933. 1933. 
the gold diggers of not i always get the number mixed up i'm really showing my like dysnumerate brain that's just why i love film so much because i don't have to do any maths but anyway yeah she 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 just loves movies so much and i feel like that's actually something that um has been lost in all this maybe or, or that people don't believe about this they don't think is sincere is that she has just kind of exploded her love of cinema in this film like you know it's like you can see all the things she's talking about all the references and even the unintentional ones i think like that is what surprised me most about the film is that it sincerely feels like it was made by someone who just loves making a spectacle and giving you things to look at and pulling these cinematic references in and really creating something that you watch it and you are totally absorbed by it and i think that's kind of what was most rewarding about the film to me. Yeah, I mean, the atmosphere at that screening last night was so good. Everyone was wearing pink. People were losing their minds on my row. I had friends basically doing like the Hunger Games to get my plus one, I gotta say. And yeah, even with kind of, you know, the three trailers that came out and clips coming out of like, you know, Ryan singing his song, like I didn't feel prepared. Like David... Was it what you were expecting? No, I'd been re- like, I've, I've got to say, even with the trailers, I was still in a bit of a kind of, yeah, grey zone as to what actually the film was going to be. And Hannah had been to see it before me and, and, and I'd asked her some, you know, strategic questions about it without trying to sort of spoil it. But even even then I was just like, I'm, I'm still not quite sure what this is. Because, yeah, you had this array of references you had all these actors. You had the, the, the these trailers with these with, that were sort of very very sort of sunny and sparkly and playing into the kind of mythos of of Barbie. And, and then it, you know it hits you with this line: "Do you ever think about dying?" And you know you kind of thinking, "Oh my God, where, where is this going to go?" And I think I think the the, the turning point for me was when because I've got a five year old daughter who's really into Barbie and she's she's been seeing the trailers for it for, on a, a, at the front of other films and she's been seeing all the advertising and she she has been kind of barbie pilled big time just every time we see any advertising for barbie she has to point it out and says can we go and see that and i have to say uh i'm waiting to hear what the certificate's going to (laughs) be is to see if i'm legally allowed to take you so when it was kind of quietly announced that it was going to be a 12a i was i was disappointed because i was really looking forward to taking her to see it but i think def you know having seen the film now i i, I kind of un- i understand and i think that you know i i let you know let's try i mean trying to make this as as, as little spoilery as possible i think that one of the f- things that the film is actually dealing with is less to do with like the sort of nostalgic element of of how ki- of how kids uh, how, you know how how Barbies are toys for kids and girls, and how and and I mean it does deal with that in the beginning, and 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 says and says how that it's you know they're making this kind of somewhat weak attempt to uh, give this kind of liberal worldview and give young girls this kind of aspirational vision of all the things they could be and normalizing all types of of bodies and. You, and they make a joke about and that and that's why liberal feminism has been completed and you know everybody in the world is happy and it's more about like the Gre- Greta Gerwig herself looking at what that what they mean to her as an adult and and thinking back about like how did they how not only did they shape my youth but how did they shape my relationship to my to my family and my friends and what I thought about guys and what I thought about about girlfriends and you know, like I think some of the most kind of effective moments are, are, are with the, with the uh, mother and daughter played by America Ferrara and Ariana Greenblatt, who Barbie hooks up with when she kind of goes over to the real world. Which you know, no, no that's not a spoiler because that's in the trailer. And yeah, like I, I actually, I found that their relationship and and how it plays out and the discussions they have about about what this toy kind of means to them both is actually very is actually really moving and america ferrara's character be- ends up being the kind of the, the sort of feminist mouthpiece bringing bringing the kind of real real world west coast vision of feminism to barbie land in the end so yeah it's it was surprising to me just so i guess going back to your original question yes i was surprised that there is basically kind of dense feminist tracts being cited that you know that I, I think not only has Greta Gerwig been doing her homework with movies, she's been she's been reading her kind of feminist philosophy, like more, you know twentieth century feminist philosophy, and like you know your bet your Betty Friedens, your Susan Sontag's, and you know she, I think I think all of that's you know she she's 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 dealing with that stuff in this film, and that's kind of what brings the subversive element to it, I think. 
Not only that, she's talking about Proust. Like, I've seen it twice now, and I think the first time that kind of washed over me a bit because there's a moment where um, Barbie makes a reference. She says, oh, I'm getting real Proustian flashbacks. And Will Ferrell, who is the CEO of Mattel, says, oh, I remember Proust Barbie? That didn't sell well. Um, But actually, like, the more I thought about it this time, I was like, wow, she's basically, like, citing In Search of Lost Time in this film and, like, um, talking about the loss of youth and the loss of kind of innocence and how memory works. Like, there's some... I, I, like one of the, I think one of the most kind of powerful moments in the film is Barbie's, but Margot, I, mean, I feel like saying Barbie, it's like there's so many Barbies, but Margot Robbie's Barbie, remembering kind of her relationship to America um, Ferrera and Ariana Greenback's characters. And it reminded me a little bit of Toy Story 2 with the whole, um, the Jessie, when she loved me scene. I think this is kind of maybe a little bit less emotionally devastating than that was to eight-year-old me but um yeah it's it's surprising how much kind of deep cut philosophy uh Greta's getting in there for I mean maybe that's also like Noah Baumbach's influence like he seems like he would be a Proust head (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean it 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 kind of like feels like a very basic thing whenever you're like watching a film to be like who is this for and like that's normally a criticism but like I was you know my daughter's really excited about this film I have no idea what I'm gonna do at this point but I was kind of sat down and within like 15 minutes I was like oh no this is like directly aimed at me philosophy nerd who gets sad and watches the BBC remake of Pride and Prejudice on loop. <laughs> like, this is a surprise, you know, like, as something that is kind of essentially like Mattel IP and like the marketing of this has been absolutely insane. It, it, it weirdly feels very uncynical. Yeah, I, I think so. I think it's so earnest and that won't work for everyone. And I'm sure that there will be a lot of kind of criticisms that come out. But I mean, that's kind of how I see Greta's filmmaking. Like, I mean, I think about Lady Bird and I think about Little Women. They are profoundly earnest films and hopeful films as well. And I mean, sad in many ways. They're both very sad films. And this, I think, is a sad film at times. But um, yeah, I guess like there's just something so um deeply rooted in the kind of like the there's this line in the film where america ferrera says even if you can't make it perfect you can make it better and that really like that to me is kind of Greta's like philosophy with filmmaking there's been all this talk about how apparently she wants to be a big studio filmmaker and a lot of people have been interpreting that as like oh she wants to make IP films she wants to make Marvel movies and I don't think it's that Hannah I think this it's... is an IP film <laughs> like yeah, no, we cannot no, pretend yeah, but, no I'm not pretending it's I'm not pretending it's like an indie film but you know like I, I think like there's a difference between working within the kind of system that exists to make films like this and working only like as a kind of you know, a gun for hire doing like action movies that all kind of feel the same. This does feel like it has a like a, a fingerprint, you know, it doesn't feel like it's a movie made by committee. And there are weird things in it and some choices that I don't think quite work. And I've said to everyone I've seen like who's asking about it, I'm like, oh, it's not a perfect movie, but I think it is a very human movie. And like for a Barbie movie to feel like it actually has a kind of soul is kind of like, oh, I, I, I you know, I was very skeptical that she would be able to kind of walk that tightrope. It's not an easy tightrope to walk. And I mean, the big problem is now, are studios going to embrace the kind of positive things about this film, i.e. giving a, a filmmaker budget and time and resources to make film they want to make or are they going to take the negative which is IP and they're just going to assume as we saw from that New Yorker article a few weeks oh well now we should just make a film about every single toy that Mattel's ever had because everyone wants to see an eight ball movie and a Barney movie and a I don't know Uno Extreme movie like you know like they're, they're just taking kind of all the wrong lessons is what I, is what I fear. Yeah, I mean, it, it is worrying. I, I, I do feel that that is kind of something I worried about also with like Top Gun Maverick, where it's just like, they're like, they love nostalgia. Let's do lots more of that. Oh, oh we worry. But Sorry, I, I just say, I guess that's also like kind of why the strike thing is so interesting happening at the same time as this, because I think the way that big studios and big CEOs and the people that crunch the numbers would have it is that they can make films like Barbie, but just not involve any of the creative talent behind it. They can just like, you know, but via some magic algorithm, they can shit out a film about, I don't know, backgammon and it'll be like an instant best, you know, everyone will want to go and watch it. Whereas like what we're seeing is the people that are creating these, these movies we love can't afford to make the movies. Like they, you know, that they're, they're, they're just trying to continue doing what they love. And I think, 
think that is kind of, you know, what I keep coming back to about this particular moment in time is that like, I am a hopeless optimist when it comes to filmmaking. I, I know a lot of people are a lot more cynical than I am about the state of movies and about the future of movies. But I don't know, it's hard for me to watch something like Barbie and for me to live in a moment where people are genuinely very excited about going to the cinema this summer and feel kind of like, oh, the end is nigh. I think, you know, the appetites are still there and the creative voices are still there. It's just kind of whether or not the studios are going to run it completely into the ground. Well, it's spoken like a true person who hasn't seen Oppenheimer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to come on tomorrow and be like, there is no hope. We're all doomed. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I can't believe that we haven't spoken about the Kens yet. David, oh. uh, the Kens. The Kens. Wow. <laughs> what is the Kens. <laughs> so the Kens. Well, the the film kind of opens introducing us to the notion that as as Hannah alluded to just before, Margot Robbie plays Barbie, but there's also all all the variation different variations of Barbie are also named Barbie with their little kind of precursor. Um so you know, you have Nobel Prize Barbie and uh you know, Doctor Barbie, etc. etc. And then you have kind of similar deal with the Kens, although the Kens seem a, all seem a little bit more uh homogenized. Their sort of like delineations are a bit more kind of like beach ken or um active ken or you know <laughs> um, but they, they they all seem a bit more much much of a muchness and like the 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 idea is that they're introduced and, and all they do is kind of pine for the Barbies. You know, they, they're completely subservient. And, you know, that that is kind of flipped on its head. And at, at the centre of it all is Ryan Gosling as as the main Ken, who has got his kind of white bleach blonde hair. And I mean, I couldn't tell if he had some sort of like chest enhancing plastic or those were his actual pecs. But they were the definition of his chest, which is kind of visible for the majority of the film. It, it's like looking at a kind of Escher painting. It's like, wow, I, I, I don't understand, you know. <laughs> I think some contour was probably involved was my yeah, guess. I imagine yeah. some, some as some... well as, you know, exercise. It's not without it's not, you know, outside the realm of possibility of him looking like that. As anyone who has seen Crazy Stupid Love will remember the very famous Photoshop scene where um, Emma Stone sees his abs and says, It's like you're fucking photoshopped, which lives in my <laughs> mind um for eternity. So, you know, I, I, it could it, it could, he looked great, I think, is what we all need to yeah. um, remember here. But yeah, I'm in very heavy sp- spray tan going on there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he w- he was kind of yeah he he had that kind of you know airbrushed vibe to him, which is kind of part of his character. Uh, Ryan Gosling is someone who there are not a lot of mainstream actors who could play that role the way that he has played it. And you know he is to say he's gone all in on it is is something of an understatement. I mean he is is a full on singing, dancing, um, self depreciatory like riot. Um, you know he 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 he's the butt of most of the jokes in the film. He's kind of absurd and 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 sweet and and charming and 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 idiotic. And you know part, I think I think that there's a sort of riff near the end which I won't really go into, but you know where where the 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 Kens kind of get 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 some comeuppance for some for, for a thing they've done and it's it's a it's a very very sort of funny you know using them uh, as the kind of butt of all these kind of quite quite funny quite sort of pop culturally feminist gags that are quite so they're, they're they're very sort of like you know they're not they're not of the sort of academic fem- feminist strand which has been sort of dealt with before but like more sort of you know obs- observational comedy about about sort of the, the, the male ego and yeah, yeah he, all he, things that have happened to me basically yeah, gotta say. <laughs> yeah. acoustic guitar and all <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think that, that that's gonna be very relatable for a lot of people watching the film but yeah i mean it's like i, th- I think one thing worth worth addressing via the kens is that so last night at this screening as you said it was mayhem and we were sort of stood behind this group of people and there was this guy and he was sort of like don't tell anyone i'm here for barbie you know i think sort of jokingly but there was it was a sort of like shot you know there sort of shy shy barbie fans you know there's this like are men gonna 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 find it tough seeing this film you know that is is it a film for for women by women about women and you know i would say definitely not i mean it's like although it's it you know it is dealing dealing with this kind of you know feminist theory in a lot of it i mean it's you know i don't i don't think that the male viewers are necessarily going to feel like i mean and in in a good way i feel that like one of the things it's doing is also sort of mocking this kind of this culture of like incel and andrew tate men's rights activist types and i I, i'd be interested to see how the kind of you know the conservative commentaria in america take this film i kind of feel like you do you remember when they when they went uh, went absolutely wild over over WAP 
I kind of feel that this sadly might, told is, on themselves is, is, yeah. a, a similar thing because it's not not only is it kind of like dealing with all the very kind of overt liberal feminism but it's also very, very critical of this, this, this new brand of kind of, you know, male influencer, men's rights and all this kind of stuff, like, you know, pro patriarchy, revolting Andrew Tate awfulness type things, which kind of can skews a little bit towards in the end. So yeah, a- anyone can go and see it and enjoy it. I think it's not just the kind of a film for, for women, I think a women's picture. Yeah, I, I mean, I was just really impressed by Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling in terms of like physical comedy. I mean, I think they really like hold their own against your sort of Will Ferrell, Kate McKinnons, who are you know better known for that. Like some of Ryan's moments were just so small, just kind of like moving an arm, and I was just in absolute stitches. Yeah, I, I haven't laughed this much in a really long time which was nice after Oppenheimer not to, no spoilers for Oppenheimer but yeah I know I know I'm not going to be laughing very much during Oppenheimer <laughs> well I mean some of the cameos you might <laughs> not to get into ne- uh, you know the next episode what one thing I would say about Barbie very quickly because I, I think I feel that like as much as I enjoyed the film and I don't necessarily I, I, I'm sort of like I'm not sure if this is necessarily a criticism of the film but like in terms of like its structure and it's and it's narrative and what's ha- you know the sort of logic behind what's happening it's very chaotic i mean i don't think it's chaotic to the point that it's to the detriment of the film because it's kind of operating on this more sort of sketchy instant instant relief level but like you know there's bits that kind of and, and sort of character arcs that just don't really make sense and i'm not i i have to say like maybe maybe chalk it up to this kind of you know slightly sort of surrealist element experimental element to the film but like i'm not actually sure like the hot what like what the film was about in the end <laughs> like not 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 what it was about i think i know what it was about but i'm not like I'm not sure what the story was. I I I'd find it very hard explaining the the narrative and how it kind of comes together to form a kind of coherent whole. But at the same time, I think we've had enough of those films that are kind of very kind of primped, packaged, and, do- and done in a very in a in a way that they, where they've been kind of noted to death. And you know, it's it's enjoyable to have a film that is this kind of it is chaotic in a, in a very enjoyable way. Yeah, I mean, I I couldn't make any sense of the ending. I loved the actual, obviously, final moment. But final 15 minutes, it was just a case of like, you know what, just relax. (laughs) She's given you a great time so far. Like, you know, just stay with her for the landing. It's okay. (laughs) Well, I mean, like, obviously, that screening was absolutely wonderful. And we were a pink army coming out in support of cinema but we should do some scores hopefully not too biased by how good the vibes were hannah you've seen it twice so do you want to go first in anticipation enjoyment and in retrospect yeah i mean anticipation is a difficult one because i was i was very excited about this but also like i did have that thing in the back of my mind of like am i setting myself up for a fall here um and also like the third feature i think sometimes can be the trickiest one for directors i think yeah i think a four is probably probably fair maybe a 4.5 i don't think it was a five because i say i do have those like i did have those a few doubts in the back of my mind enjoyment I think probably a five. I the first time I saw it, I I cried three times. Um, and I said, as I said, like as a Ryan Gosling fan, this is like all my Christmases come at once. I do think he really like Margot Robbie's fantastic, but I think yeah, Ryan just kind of he operates on a different plane of existence when it comes to comedy. As anyone who has seen The Nice Guys will attest, he's just a, a really wonderful comedic presence. And then in retrospect, I think it's a four. I think there's definitely flaws and there are things that I don't think necessarily work or that kind of feel a little bit rushed weirdly like the editing is very choppy there's one character that just straight up is never introduced but is like kind of there in scenes and you're like who's okay we're not gonna okay right fine um but yeah I mean I still think it's wonderful but uh yeah I a four five four would be where I'm landing on it very reasonable. I'm just going to copy that. That was exactly how I felt. As well. <laughs> uh, but so, so, David, it's up to you to kind of like subvert yeah, the 455. I, I, I'm probably going to go 444. I, I, I thought it was like, you know, I, I, I was kind of r- super intrigued by it. I like Greta. May, maybe it was actually, maybe it was 544 because I think, I do think that like Little Women was like maybe my favorite film of, of that year. So, like, my, you know, I, I was, I didn't love Ladybird, but 
I, I, I loved Little Women and, and I was like, wow, she, she's an incredible director. What is she going to bring to this? But then, yeah, I, I think it, it, it would be impossible to live up to the, all the marketing and hype and, you know, and, and the expectation. And it, it, it is, it is a, it's a weird film. It's a weird, fragile, idiosyncratic blockbuster that has has lots of amazing stuff in it that but that is kind of it's you know i think that yeah it, as i say it's like it's slightly all over the place and you know i don't i don't necessarily think I, i'm gonna try and you know I, I think i'll probably see it try and see it again with my with my daughter like relatively soonish but i think five is maybe a little bit too too young <laughs> so yeah fours across the board for me yeah i've, I've got the same the the same pressure because it's like but, and I'm hoping they just kind of enjoy the aesthetic and don't get too kind of caught up in the existential dread. But yeah, let me know how it goes for you. <laughs> I wonder if the box office initially is not as up to the, up to the scratch. They do actually release a PG cut so they can get the kiddie quotient in for the summer holidays. I mean, that's a that's a gold mine right there that they're not that they're, they're leaving they're leaving covered up. So. You know, your 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 calls, Aslav. Yeah, and then they'd have to change the final scene, and that would be sad. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't think they would. I think that anyone, because it's twelve a over here. I think that a lot of parents will just take their younger kids. I think seven and up, you'd probably be fine with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it yeah, all depends on how, seven. Yeah, <laughs> it all, that doesn't help us, Anna. I, I'm, yeah, I'm just telling the listeners. Um, <laughs> I think, yeah, I, I I don't think you could cut all the stuff out that makes it a 12A and it still be the same film. I mean, there are also plenty of Barbie movies out there if you want your child to watch a Barbie movie. <laughs> Barbie Life in the Dream House is on Netflix. It's great. It's really funny. And it has a very similar vibe. And I wish I'd asked Greta if she'd seen it because I, I, I think she did. Um, but yeah, but, uh, you know. There is I, a surprisingly good episode of Barbie that explained white privileged really <laughs> well to my daughter at like five and she just got it. So yeah, Barbie's been doing some good work for a while. But yeah, we should move on to Film Club. It's the Young Girls of Rushford. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Twin sisters Delphine and Solange really realise their dream of working for the stage when they are discovered by a couple associated with a carnival and find love in the process. So David, this was your call. Why did you decide to pair Barbie with this film? Oh, um, well, two reasons. I, I think I'd, I'd heard, read somewhere that, you know, um, Greta Gerwig had been influenced by Jacques Demy. And I kind of thought, full disclosure, this is like one of, if not my favourite film of all time. And probably one of the films I've seen the most times ever. When it came out on Blu-ray a couple of years ago and I recorded a commentary for it and I ended up watching it like, I mean, this is, I guess it's a bit of a cheat, but I ended up watching it like 12 times in a month. And and even even that, I was I was still, I was, you know, I was still happily, I, I've still watched it again since because that's how much I, I, I enjoy it. Um, yeah, it, this, I think this was a film that I, I originally ended up watching 
on the back of the 2002 sight and sound poll and just seeing it crop up in a couple of votes and not really knowing anything about it like more people had voted for 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 um umbrellas of sherborg which is kind of his most his more famous film and uh this this film actually was a was a when it came out it was a, it was a bit of a bomb especially in america because i think um Pauline Kale had, had, had was very wrote a very negative review of it, saying it was this kind of like you know homage to American musicals, and but it, it was done really badly, and the dancing was awful. It didn't, and it was all it was all kind of wishy washy and tonally all over the place. And um, I mean, so basically, to praise the film, it's about a, a group of of traveling uh, motorcycle and boat sales like marketing salesmen. <laughs> who travel around French cities. This is a very French 60s thing. They travel around French cities and they do these kind of commercial carnivals where they have all these stalls where you can look at boats and motorbikes and cars and things. And they and they do songs and dances uh, 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 around them. And they're doing one in the town square of Rochefort which is in kind of like southwestern France. And um, you have these twins and you have these the two, these two guys who are kind of com- coming through through in the carnival and they meet. And, and, and it's, it's kind of this sort of like very Shakespearean kind of rondelet of like misconnections and people, people looking for their true loves and, and, and trying, to, trying to meet people. And then Gene, Gene Kelly turns up as this uh, composer who's, who, who is looking for his feminine ideal and he sees, it, sees a portrait of her in a, in a picture gallery and says, who's that? And she's like, oh, it's a girl who lives here. And they kind of bump into each other. And, and it's, it's this very kind of like fat, fanciful fairy tale film with incredible songs by Michel Legrand. And, you know, I, I love it for a billion reasons. But I think one of the, the reasons why it's maybe a good choice for film club that tonally too, it, it, it's got these kind of very strange undercurrents of like there's like a there's like a mass murderer who's like at large during the whole film that they're kind of referring to and there's this kind of conceptual artist who does these really weird aggressive paintings where he shoots shoots paint onto a onto a canvas and and you know there's there's all these questions about like you know deadbeat dads and you know like women women who've just been left to, to sort of you know li- squander their lives in at work working at working at kind of food concessions and yeah it's it's kind of a film that deals with these quite difficult social subjects i think all of jack demy's films do that they're kind of like smuggling in this kind of very trenchant and and of of, you know, of the era political discourse in, into the into these like magical fairy tale musicals that they give you that they give you the kind of bliss of seeing like pastel clothes and amazing jazzy dance numbers but also you've got this kind of real sense of like oh yeah this this stuff is happening and yeah and it's all it's all set to this kind of ticking clock and and as the days go by and you know that the carnival is going to leave town and when it does it's like this you know it's not necessarily sad what happens to the characters, but it's sad in the end that all the characters have to kind of leave and go their separate ways. And it's done in this really kind of melancholy way. Um, but yeah, just, you know, I, I think we picked it before seeing Barbie, but having seen Barbie, I can definitely see there's some some overlap there. But may, maybe having seen Barbie, there are some, like uh, my colleague Adam was telling me this morning that he he, he would have picked The Matrix as the uh, as the film club because <laughs> it well and then you yeah, know that, it's like the, the red pill blue pill fit bit and then you've got the you know meeting the creator and you know like it's there's there's he, there's he a went whole through, bit in a yeah, white space yeah yeah there's a there's a there's, there's a whole load of stuff that he uh that, that he, it does make sense yeah they picked up on <laughs> and it's warner yeah. brothers ip so she could have <laughs> raided that so sorry i've i've rabbited on a long a long time there but no it's true once you once you kind of see barbie it's like beta meinhof effect you kind of start seeing it everywhere <laughs> <laughs> well i think it's i mean greta has said as well like the influences um are very far-reaching like in the letterbox piece she talks about um the truman show and there's a lovely bit where she talks about how um peter weir and her had a long phone conversation um because she was very inspired by the look of the truman show and kind of that artificiality that is in the film and um peter weir was saying yeah well we shot all that outside but we hung up lights to make it look more artificial and it made it really hot so don't do that um and just the (laughs) idea of those two kind of chatting you know chatting shop on the phone is very charming um i i I had not seen um, the young girls of Rochefort before. I had seen the umbe- the umbrellas of Sherborg, and I really liked that. But I think we did that for a previous film club, which is why I th- um, we kind of thought we'd do this one instead. And I do think I now understand.
understand like La La Land a lot better having now watched this film. Um, and I just feel like Damien Chazelle really like ripped that off wholesale. Like the the whole like opening of La La Land, the kind of recurring like musical little like um, I forget the name like for like a riff. There's like a fancy French name motif. Yeah, I mean, I I was just like wow. I I I mean. It kind of made me uh, dislike La La Land. <laughs> I feel my otherwise quite like um, because I was like, oh, he did just like rip off this uh, this musical from the sixties. But I do think Umbrellas at Cherbourg is better, um, having now seen them both. Um, <laughs> I think I like the kind of the sad ending in um, Umbrellas of Cherbourg, whereas this is like more hopeful, more more kind of Hollywood. Which is, I mean, it was his big homage to like Hollywood grand musicals, wasn't it? So yeah, it's a movie that loves movies. <laughs> There's a lot of those going round at the moment. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we should wrap up because you know people may get sick of us because they are getting two episodes this week. But yes, shall we do our non-movie recommendations to finish? David, do you want to go first? Not that people have time because okay. they've got to see. The, I know, there's so much like, to there's, see. There's like five hours of, of essential viewing and then, you know, and then some. Okay, I'm very I'm very late to the party on this and, I, and, I, and apologies if someone else has, has already done this in the past, but um, I'm going to say a, a show called Poker Face, written and largely directed by Ryan Johnson. N- Natasha Leone starring riff on the detective serial Columbo. Yeah, and uh, I don't watch much TV. I watch very, very, very little TV, in fact. And and I think the one thing that I might watch is The, is the Bear, just because there's so many pe- separate people have, have recommended that to me. So The Bear may be incoming but i ended up watching poker face for for similar reasons and and just had a had a really good time with it it's very, it's light it's not it doesn't take itself too seriously it's quite it's quite wacky and you know the situations are kind of unbelievable it's got a kind of mid do you do, do you guys know what i mean by like a midsummer murders vibe like sort of <laughs> yeah something quite absurd about the fact that you know there's so many murders happening in this sort of sleepy village well you know you're sort of like how can one woman be involved <laughs> on the side on the on the sideline to so many like brutal slayings but yeah it's it's done it's done in a very sort of tongue-in-cheek and charming way and natasha leone is is great and you know ryan johnson obviously has put in some serious kind of quality control on it and it feels shot in a very sort of cinematic way as well so yeah very enjoyable yeah i gotta say poker face is one and the bear actually are ones that i am kind of saving for the tv siberia that awaits us because of uh recent events uh yeah so November, I think, is where I'm going <laughs> to save that for. Uh, Hannah, what about you? What is your rec? <laughs> My recommendation is uh, Barbie related. So I think I may have mentioned, in fact, yeah, I definitely mentioned this to Saskia because uh, Saskia, friend of the podcast who was on um, our Smoking Causes Coffee and Slash Elemental episode and wrote an article recently about Barbie for the website for Little World Eyes Online. It's a really good article to going through kind of parodies of Barbie across history. And a show I mentioned to her um, is like a web series from the mid 2000s called The Most Popular girls in school that I used to watch and it's basically stop motion Barbies uh, voiced by this group of guys um, and some like niche internet celebrities of the time and it's just about a a clique of cheerleaders at a Kansas high school and their kind of foul mouthed increasingly ridiculous conflicts that they get into there's like a teen pregnancy there's a hipsters versus cheerleaders like battle that goes on it's it's really really silly and really ridiculous and in some places is just like very very much of its time in terms of humor and the jokes they're making um, which is a polite way of saying there are a lot of slurs in it that I <laughs> very much do not approve of and very much um, you know you're kind of like oh wow this was only 10 years ago and people openly felt like they could say this kind of stuff with their whole chest but it, there's a lot of good stuff in there too there's a very funny joke about Pearl Harbor the film that like I keep thinking about where um... oh god thank goodness you said the film at the end of that <laughs> sentence <laughs> yeah on, like... on theme with Oppenheimer um, no yeah. no no, no, no. The, the film the film version of Pearl Harbor a very funny um reference to that where um they're comparing like Ben Affleck and Cuba Gooding Jr in that film which is, it, it, yeah it's very funny um so yeah it, again very of its time so don't every episode is not a winner but the ones that are good are so good and they're only like eight eight minutes an episode so if you're just kind of on your lunch break and looking for something to pass the time it's a, one of those odd curios where I can't believe these guys kind of didn't go on to do big things because it's so inventive. It's very like Robot Chicken, if any listeners are kind of familiar with that Adult Swim show by Seth 
green um where it's kind of all yeah the same thing barbies and action figures and improvised sets and yeah it's just i i think it's just really fun um and really creative and watching barbie it did remind me a lot of the way you know as an adult you, you kind of pick up these toys and you're like oh yeah now yeah, i need to play with this and yeah yeah it's just good fun yeah, that does sound great. I mean, maybe that'll be what I do on the bus in between going to rewatch all of these things. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect length for that. Perfect length for a bus ride. <laughs> if you've got thoughts on these films, you can email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies. Next up, you may think about Dying Barbie, but Oppenheimer is about to become Death, the Destroyer of Worlds. Hannah and David will be back in a couple of days to discuss Christopher Nolan's latest on an Oppenheimer special, and I spoke to its star, the incredible Killian Murphy. Thanks very much for tuning in, and if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth in Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were David Jenkins and Hannah Strong. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus. 